Hello and welcome to the Common Good Podcast, the podcast that showcases the very best of Glasgow Caledonian University's research and how it benefits people and communities locally, nationally and around the world. My name is Craig Telfer and I'm delighted to be joined by a sports historian who specialises in women's golf and women's football. Dr Fiona Skillen, thank you very much for appearing on today's show. Oh, thank you for having me. This is perhaps one of the timeliest podcasts we're likely to record because the Scotland women's team are just about to compete in the first ever World Cup finals in France. Mm. And just recently they played against Jamaica in front of almost 19,000 supporters at Hamden Park. It was a new record attendance it was indeed. for a women's game in Scotland. And with so much excitement surrounding the women's game at the moment, I think there's a brilliant opportunity to look back at the development in the women's game in Scotland. So is there a definitive point where we can say this is where the women's game started? Well, now that's an interesting one. We do know that women were playing football in Scotland way back in the 16th century. Wow. And the reason we know that women were active was because they were breaking the rules of the Kirk. So the Kirk took great pleasure in noting those in their records. And and that's the only reason really that we know that they were playing. Now, obviously, the football that they were playing in that period was not the kind of formal organised mm-hmm. football we now recognise. It was more folk football, which was much more informal. The rules were made locally, so there okay. would be a lot of variations and certainly a lot more aggressive and competitive than the, the football that we're used to seeing. Okay. Yeah. What were they using for a ball at the time? So it would probably have been some sort of leather casing with a pig's bladder inflated on the, on the interior and... We know there are the, one of the oldest footballs that we know in existence was actually found in Stirling Castle. Interestingly, that was found in the chambers of Mary Queen of Scots. Really? And we wow. know that she, while we don't know if she played herself, we do know that she did watch football on at least one occasion because she records it in her diary just after she crosses the border and she gets taken into protective custody, as they called it. It turned out to be something quite different, but protective <laughs> custody at that time by the English. We know that she watched a game in Carlisle and it was her retinue that were playing the game. Mm-hmm. They played for about two and a half hours and she talked about the skill of the players. So we know that she was a very early female spectator of football. That's incredible. My, my perception of, the, of when football started, it kind of goes back to the sort of mid to late 19th century. I didn't yes. realise that we were playing football as yes. far back as that. Yeah, so we know that they were playing this kind of folk football. We know, for example, that there were regular mixed games amongst the fishwives in Musselburgh. Right. Again, we have records of that, that they play regularly on, I think it's Shrove Tuesday that they played. So we have these these records that show women were playing against one another, so not just in, in mixed uh, football games. What else was going on in Britain at the time? Was Scotland a trailblazer in terms of women's football? Well, that's quite hard to say because our understanding of, of the evolution of women's football is quite fragmented. And so we know, as I said earlier, about these particular examples because they were recorded in, in Kirk Minutes. And so, so far, researchers haven't found anything equivalent for that period elsewhere in Europe, not just in Britain. So yes, in some ways we are, but I'm not sure how, how long we'll be able to claim that. Somebody may pop up tomorrow <laughs> with something. We're talking about sort of the games that are played in uh, the Kirk, sort of played in local villages. Mm. At what point was there sort of more formalised, more structure to the women's game? Well, I think all sports really start to formalise really in the Victorian period, the late um, 19th century, and we see organisations being set up to formalise those rules and regulations. And so, although there isn't a women's organisation set up for football, specifically in Scotland in that period, we know that they will start to play along the same lines as those rules and regulations that the men had established in that period. And so, you're right, it really is in the 1880s and the 1890s that we see women playing football games that are much more equivalent to what we're used to seeing them now. 
one of those games with the first women's match there to be playing using the Football Association rules was in May 1881 yes. and that was a game played at Easter Road of course where Hibernian play between England and Scotland and it's yeah. England and Scotland in inverted commas uh, why is it we yeah. using inverted commas to describe the teams? So there isn't really much evidence to suggest that there was any sort of trial or scouting process to get the best of Scotland or the best of England <laughs> um, really I think it's probably come down to availability who was around at the time and they're labelling it Scotland and England to kind of play on that rivalry and to get people through the gates to come and watch the match. How was the match itself? So the match itself was good, it was well received, people were excited to be watching it and a lot. there's a quite a bit of press coverage around mm-hmm. it as well and quite a lot of fixation about what the women are wearing to play for example, um, as you might expect. So the Glasgow Herald reported that the Scottish teams looked smart in their blue jerseys, white knickerbockers, red belts and high-heeled boots. Wow, you wouldn't catch uh, catch Erin <laughs> Cuthbert or Lana Cleland wearing that sort of stuff. Now, why was there so much a fixation on what the players were wearing rather than what was actually going out on the pitch? Well, I think there's a combination of things happening. So in this this period, you know, women are seem to be feminine, genteel. They're supposed to be respectable. They're supposed to be in the home. Their main roles in life are to be the companion, the wife, the mother, to be producing the heirs. And so these women really are kind of breaking the rules, you know, breaking social taboos by going out and playing these very masculine sports in a public arena. And so there is a kind of carnivalesque atmosphere when you read the reports of, of the matches that, that people are coming to watch. So I think the fact that they're playing this masculine sport and there's sometimes an overtone about these women being masculine mm. because they're playing these sports. So that naturally would lend itself to having a discussion about, well, how feminine are they? What are they wearing? Are they wearing men's clothes? And actually what we can see here is, no, they're, they're wearing clothes that emphasise their femininity. So rather than wearing you know, football boots that men would wear mm-hmm. or football shoes because the boots came out a little later, they're wearing high-heeled shoes. <laughs> so, you know, totally contrary to what would be good for playing on a, a rough grass surface. How did the media's reporting of women's football, how did that shape the public perception about it? Well, it's quite interesting because the first match is quite positively reported and, in fact, the way the crowd reacts is quite positive. But the second match, which happens just a few days later, um, has to be abandoned because the crowd are just... They uh, they go wild. They are not yeah. happy with what's happening on the pitch and eventually there is a pitch invasion and the players have to be evacuated. And again, th- you see there's a very distinct shift in the discourse within the newspapers where they're saying this isn't right, women shouldn't be playing this sport, it's not suitable for women to be playing. So it's almost as if the first matches are kind of, hey, this is okay, this is fun, this is, you know, we'll all have a laugh about it. And then suddenly, oh no, this is happening again. This is this is not right. We don't want this to become a regular occurrence and to be socially acceptable. Of course, this would come and affect the Scottish FA's, uh, some of their decisions around women's football yes. in a subsequent decades, but we'll come yes. on to that. Now, I know in the 1890s, there were women's teams who toured around Britain playing yes. matches. Can you tell me about them? We know that, so that those games were in the early 1880s. And those, after they're kind of run out of town, if you like, run off the pitch, the, there's, the, the trail goes quiet. There's not a lot happening in Scotland in women's football, as far as we know. But then in the 1890s, we have a series of different matches with touring football teams coming up from England to play with different teams in Scotland. And so we see the women's game appearing in the press again. And again, we see these similar narratives coming out about, is this appropriate for women to be doing? Is this something we should be encouraging? 
And again, that kind of falls by the wayside through various different things that happen in terms of personalities within the teams, etc., and funding for the teams and, and money and so forth. So again, that kind of collapses in on itself very quickly, mm-hmm. really within a matter of years. And so the women's game, again, as far as we can tell, sort of disappears from the picture. And then it re-emerges during the First World War. Yeah, tell me, how did the First World War play a part in the development of the women's game? So the First World War is really significant because women are called on to take up the jobs that the men have left vacant when they've gone off to fight. And so for many women, this is the first time they're taking roles in heavy industry within the factories. And within that environment, women begin to play football and actually other leisure activities as well in their breaks and in their lunch hours. And there's evidence to suggest that they're being encouraged to do this for a number of reasons. One is to to help them keep fit so Mm -hmm. that they are able to undertake the heavy work that's required of them. Also keeping them active so they are not spending their time unionising and and coming (laughs) up with with reasons to to protest, although we know that isn't entirely successful because Red Clydeside is happening around this time as well. But also, this is what the men did. So they played and they created leagues and they created competitions against different factories. And so there's lots of evidence of factories, particularly munitions factories, having women's teams in this period. And probably the most well-known in Scotland is Beardmore's in okay. Glasgow. And they have several teams that play and they become very successful. How is the game being played? Was there rules and a structure put in place at this point? As far as we can tell, and again, it's very fragmentary evidence that we have in this period... They are playing rules similar to the men's game. And they are using referees, etc. They're using full pitches. So, yeah, it's very like the men's game at the same time. But obviously the women's game is naturally slightly slower, less aggressive in this period. Mm-hmm. Obviously that changes uh, as we get later on in the 20th century, as, as we saw with, with our own Scotland team. Why didn't the game develop after the war? Really significantly in 1921, the FA, so the Football Association in England ban women's football. Now in Scotland they don't take the formal step of introducing a ban but what they do is discourage any of their members, the SFA, discourage any of their members from allowing women to play on their pitches or using their referees. Right, I must massive disadvantage then if you're not hugely, able to hugely so now there has been a discussion amongst historians about what happens then so is that the end of the game and certainly it doesn't seem to be the case from the, the snippets that you can see in the press we know that women are continuing to play they're holding competitions but what happens is that they are popping up in all sorts of strange places so right. they're playing in public parks they're playing in rugby pitches anywhere they can get access to facilities but obviously not having that recognition or encouragement is significant significant in having an impact on how the game develops. Why did the English FA take this step? So again, the the official line is that it's not suitable for women and there are various medical um doctors trotted out to say that, you know, this is this is no longer appropriate. In contrast to the same you know, medical figures who during the war were saying, Oh yes, this is this is a good thing, women to be physically active, etc. Suddenly that discourse changes. And this is part of a wider what historians have called the backlash theory, the backlash model, which is when the men come back from war, they want to come back to how things were before mm-hmm. they left. They want the women back in the homes, back in the same jobs that they had before, etc. So the fact that they have gone into this very masculine preserve is hugely problematic. So that's one of the arguments. The other argument is also put forward around the matches that the women played during the First World War were often for war 
causes for war charities yeah. and in, in part that legitimises public interest in it, people coming to watch because I'm doing a good deed for, for the war and the and women are doing a good deed for, for the war effort. But what happens is the FAC, you know, we're, we're concerned that some of this money, a lot of this money is not reaching these causes. Did they have any evidence and to back that up? Not that I've found, not that I've seen other historians have found. So yes, that's that's problematic that they're they're blaming corruption, but actually there's very little evidence to substantiate that. So then, what happened in the intervening decades after 1921? So we know again there's a resurgence during the Second World War for very similar reasons to the First World War that the men go away and the women are back in the factories and able to pursue these interests. And again, after the war, 1949 the SFA actually make their first proper decree where they say no more support for women's football. Right. So that's the first time they make a formal recording in their minute books. Was there anything specific that made the SFA come to that So decision? again, they're, they're saying it's just it's not suitable right. for women. And we want to remind our affiliates that they are not to support the women's game. And so again, effectively what happens is the women's game is going underground. So we only know about the odd match here and there when it occasionally pops up in, in the, the local presses. But we do know women continue to play. In 1971, that was a turning point for women's football in Europe. It was indeed. Not for Scotland, though. <laughs> Ironically, no, not for Scotland. So in 1971, so that's following two unofficial uh, Women's World Cups in 70 in Italy and 71 in Mexico, there was a kind of recognition around UEFA, the Union of um, European Football Associations, that really the women's game needed recognition. And so they asked all of their members to give recognition to the women's game. And they held a vote and 31 of the members voted in favour of recognition and one did not. And unfortunately for us, the one that did not was Scotland. Why was that? There's lots of... Um, hypothesis about what, why that <laughs> might be the case. I Personally, I think it's to do with the entrenched masculinity in Scotland, that this football was such an important part of working class masculine identity in Scotland in that period, that this was a step too far to give recognition. And we have to see it in its wider context. So in this period, women are pushing for equality and they're agitating for equality. And we have very active women in Scotland pushing for women's football to be recognised in this period. So people like Rose Riley, mm -hmm. Edna Nellis, and particularly Elsie Cook are really forcing that issue and continually going back to the SFA and asking the question, when are you going to recognise us? And we have a really odd situation where in 1972, we have our first international match between Scotland and England. And the Scottish women's team is not recognised by the SFA. Totally bizarre. And so they don't. They, these women don't get caps. And in fact, they only got caps for that match just past, mm -hmm. uh, just, just a few days ago. Because Nicola Sturgeon gave, uh, gave she these did. players caps. Yeah, she did. Yeah. She did. So finally they got that recognition for that match. So what impact did that have on these players? You know, players like Rose Riley, she yeah. moved uh, to Italy and ended yeah. up winning 20 caps for she the did. Italian side. Yes. Can you tell me about some of those players? So, yeah, I mean, Rose... You know, she had a passion for football. She wanted to become a professional footballer and the opportunities were not there for her in Scotland. And so Rose and Edna Nellis, who was also a very good footballer in this period, they kind of cooked up a plan with, with Elsie Cook, who was the, the manager at the time, and the Daily Record. And they did a campaign with Stan Shebus, who was a very well-known journalist in the record, to get these two women trials in Europe. So they got trials in Reims. And they were signed, by half time they were signed. Um, <laughs> and very quickly, within a few weeks, they were talent spotted by AC Milan. Wow. And they both got signed by AC Milan. 
and the, their stories are phenomenal and there's a new documentary about to come out about Rose which is, I was at the premiere of it a few weeks ago and it is just the most mind-blowing story and the most, you know, it was just the most moving story as well. Rose was, was actually at the premiere and, 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 and talked at the end of it and just to get a sense of the passion these women had that they really wanted to play and the opportunities weren't there in Scotland. And so you have this ironic situation where our two best footballers are off playing in Europe and they want to come back and represent Scotland after 74 when the SFA finally back down and say, right, we'll recognise the women's game. They want to come back and play, but because they have criticised the SFA effectively, they are banned from playing for Scotland, which is heartbreaking for these women who that's all they want to do is to represent mm. their country. Now you mentioned there in 1974 that the mm. Scottish FA lifted their ban on women's football. What happened to change their mind? I, I think it was a lot to do with, you know, we mentioned earlier, women are agitating for equality mm-hmm. and the government is now is coming on side in this period. We have the Equalities Act coming in in 74. I think the SFA kind of realised the writing was on the wall and that if they didn't make the choice of their own accord, their hand was going to be forced by, by this legislation that was coming in into play. So I think somewhat reluctantly they did recognise the women's game at that point. So what happened to the sport then in the intervening years after 1974? I think it was I think it was quite a tough struggle really for the game because there wasn't a lot, although they were recognised by the SFA, there wasn't a lot of funding, there wasn't a lot of support. It wasn't really until I think it was the 90s before the SFA actually kind of took the women's game into their organisation effectively. So that was really problematic. But again, you have these passionate women coming through and playing and creating their own leagues and competitions and actually doing very well. So the the Scottish Women's Football Federation actually are sending teams off to England and competing in England and doing very well in England as well. So the the level of the game is very good, even if there isn't that kind of institutional support. Tell me how the team's improved then over the the last few years. I mean, getting to our World Cup final is a tremendous achievement. Yeah, I think, you know, that, that has been the pinnacle so far and hopefully you know they'll go even further but qualifying for the world cup this year but also the euro champions qualifying for that in 2017 Mm -hmm. under anna signol that was a really significant moment as well and that was i feel like a sort of coming of age for the team as well that people actually sat up and noticed Mm -hmm. oh we're we're good we're that good that we're in europe you know and a similar situation with the world cup you know, we had, as we mentioned at the start, we had record-breaking crowds yeah. watching that final game, final warm-up match for the for the women going off to the World Cup. Eighteen thousand, oh, eighteen and a half thousand yeah. actually turned out. We were hoping for ten thousand to break the it's record, incredible. and we had almost double that. So I think that shows that there's a groundswell of support for these women. But again, we also know from other academics who are doing research in this area that the media coverage of the women's team is minuscule really by comparison to the men's game. And that's somewhat ironic considering the Scottish men's team hasn't qualified for a World Cup since 1998. So it should be something that we're mm-hmm. all getting behind and celebrating. So Do you see that changing though uh, in the next few years? It's just sort of incremental steps. I hope so. I hope so. It feels like something is changing at the moment. Um, a combination of recognition of women's skills and achievements, but also I think the Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. It seems like we are having different conversations and people are listening to that so I hope that this is a moment of change but you can never tell because as a sports historian I know that every time a World Cup comes around every time an Olympics comes around Wimbledon we always have that hope that this is something new and significant for women's sport sometimes it is but very often it isn't we run into the World Cup with a lot of confidence what do you think that comes from I 
Well, I don't know. I mean, I think Shelley Kerr is a very positive person. And I think as a manager, that is her approach to inspire and to be positive. And I think you have to probably have that mentality if you're playing sport at that level. I mean, you wouldn't want to be going in as a kind of doer pessimistic, oh, mm-hmm. what's the point? We're not, you know, we're not going to it's, win. It's interesting though, because the, the men's team mm. take that sort of attitude, but the women's team going into the World Cup is like, this is going to be brilliant yes, fun. Yes, you know, it's, it's, it's incredible, it the sort of the differences between is, the two. It is, definitely, yeah. I mean, my husband recently played me the, um, the song for uh, 1998, Don't, uh, don't, don't Come, come home, home Too, too Soon. soon. And if ever there was a more depressing song... <laughs> it's actually quite a good you know, song. I think just the, the, the title sort of holds the back, vi- yeah. The video is so depressing. And you just think, that's not inspiring. That's mm-hmm. not kind of, we could do this. You know, mm-hmm. that kind of Scottish spirit you would associate with competitive yeah. sport. Um, so I think you're right. There's a very different attitude mm-hmm. from, from the women's team and from the support behind mm-hmm. the women's team as well, this optimism. We're drawn in a difficult group alongside England, Japan and Argentina. How do you think we'll get on? I think it's going to be tough. I mean, particularly the opening game against England. That is a really tough call. I mean, England are favourites, you know, for the championship for, to win. There. You know, so I think that's that's going to be really challenging. But you know, as we said, they're going in with such optimism and enthusiasm. What else can you ask from the team, really? This might be a bit of a thick question, Fiona, but why is it important that we chart the evolution of the women's game? Why is it important that we understand the history behind, uh, from all the way from like the Victorian era to, yeah. to now? Well, I mean, I think I'm a bit biased because I'm a historian and I think history is important to everything. But, you know, I think it's really important to understand where the game has developed from, how far it has come, the challenges that people have overcome, but also the challenges that we continue to face. So there's a lot of parallels between the experiences that people are having now and had in the past. And I think we can learn from that and we can create you know, solidarity from that as well. And that was certainly evident, you know, when I was at the the premiere of that, the Rose Riley documentary, talking about her experiences and the players who were in the room and Shelley Kerr was in the room and you could see them nodding along. They recognised that. So I think, you know, history has an intrinsic value because we can share those experiences and it gives us a shared identity. And I think we should celebrate these women that, that have broken down these barriers, that have pioneered the sport, because without them, we wouldn't be in the position we're in now or we, we wouldn't be as far along as we are now. Um, so it's really important we don't forget that. And I think sometimes we we do, we see women's football in particular as a relatively modern thing. And yes, there's a very big difference between the modern game that we're going to see in the World Cup to the game that they're playing you know, back in the 17th mm-hmm. and 16th century. Of course there is. But that doesn't mean that the two things are not connected in some way and that we shouldn't be thinking about those things and celebrating those things. Fiona, that's been absolutely tremendous to talk to you. I've learned a lot and thank you very much for your time today. No problem at all. I'd like to thank everyone for listening to the show and I hope you join us again soon when we'll be talking to another researcher from Glasgow Caledonian University. Until then, I've been Craig Telfer and this has been the Common Good Podcast.